and utter boastfulness on my part. I don't mind telling you. Our middle son leaves in a couple of days. Uh, tomorrow we'll gather as a family. We'll lay hands on him, pray for him, he and his wife. He's going off to the army. We got him a cake at Sam's that says, you're in the army now. <laughs> and uh, he's going to be an army chaplain, which is great. That's a pastor to soldiers. Taint nothing better. And then he's going to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to jump out of airplanes. And the reason for that is he's um, nuts. I don't know how else to put him. But anyway, we're proud of him. We are proud of him. I told him when you put on the uniform, you will represent a long line of those who've gone before you and will come after you. You must wear it with honor. You cannot cast dispersions on that uniform. It's an important thing. Anyway, for those of you who worn it or are now wearing it, uh, you mean a lot to us. We're proud of you. And thank you for doing what you do. Uh, his name is Grant. Grant, yes. Sorry, Brenda, it's too late. He's already married. Okay, good folks. Jeremiah chapter 6. Look at this. It's not a pleasant chapter. But it's in the Bible, so we'll cover it. It's unpleasant because it talks about human nature, and that's not a pretty picture. <laughs> I, I won't uh, take you through... Every single verse will highlight it. Let's start with the beginning. Verse 1, flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin. Jeremiah is issuing an, a, warning to the, a warning to the Israelites. They've sinned. Uh, God wants to correct them. He's going to make use of another nation to do so. So Jeremiah says, flee, O sons of Benjamin. Now, what's that about? Would you like to guess what tribe... Jeremiah hailed from? Yeah, Benjamin. So you got the 12 tribes of Israel, and uh, Jeremiah was a Benjamite. So some say he was most concerned about the welfare of his peeps, the Benjamites. But I think it's more than that. Um, what is the ancient capital of Israel? Yeah, Jerusalem. What, what is the modern capital of Israel? Okay, just want to see if you got that. Just a little aside. That Jerusalem is the capital of Israel is not a United Nations decision. That's a God decision. To divide up Jerusalem in the name of peace is sheer and utter insanity. You cannot give away what God gave you and expect it will work out. Esau tried that, didn't he? Tried to exchange his birthright for soup. Didn't work. So anyway, Jerusalem is the capital of ancient Israel, and it happens to be in the land occupied by the tribe of Benjamin. So that's probably what, ben what Jeremiah is getting at. All you people here amongst the Benjamites, listen up. Flee for safety from the midst of Jerusalem. Now blow a trumpet. Why? Well, it wasn't a concert. It was a warning. Uh, this is before telecommunications and radar and all this kind of stuff. So when you mobilized an army in that day and warned the civilian populace that uh, an enemy is coming, you blow a trumpet. That's one of the things they did. So Jeremiah says, blow it in Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a little place about 11 miles southeast of Jerusalem. So if in your mind you put yourself in Jerusalem and go down, you're going to end up in Tekoa. Have any idea... Uh, 
why we're why we're moving here in a southward direction. Would you like to guess? Why is the warning for them to flee and go south? Any idea? Denise? That's it exactly. The enemy is coming from the north. Do you know the name of the enemy? In in this case. Yeah, the Babylonians. So they're coming from the north, and so it makes sense. You don't want to run to them. You want to run away. So sound the trumpet in Tekoa, and look what it says. Raise a signal. You know what kind of signal? Fire. Yeah, it was a signal fire. Again, that was another warning. So trumpets and signal fires on every hill. So, you know, one sentry would see the signal fire on this hill. It would, it would represent something. He'd set one on this hill, and that's how they would warn the populace, and that's how the army would get mobilized for battle. And in this case, raise a signal fire over a place called Beth Hakerem. We don't know exactly where it is. We suspect it's also southward, perhaps between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Don't know exactly. It means house of the vines or vineyard or something like that. And then it says, do this because evil looks down. So there it is from the north and a great destruction. The comely and dainty one, daughter of Zion, I'll cut off. Now look at this. Shepherds and their flocks will come to her. They'll pitch their tents around her. They'll pasture each in his place. What's that all about? Let me just suggest something, but I'm not sure it's right. Because <laughs> we're talking about battle here, and now we're talking about shepherds and their flocks. So what's up? I think a possibility is that the conquest by the Babylonians will be so total that the walled city of Jerusalem will be so leveled, it'll then come to be useful only for shepherds and their sheep. It will no longer be a cosmopolitan defensive structure with a wall. No shepherds and their, and their flocks will do their thing right there on the precincts of Jerusalem. Another possibility is that this is figurative language for the generals of Babylon, shepherds and their flocks. I don't know. You decide. The point is, they're coming. It's a battle. Therefore, verse 4, prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at what time of day? Now look at here. A noon attack in the Middle East. What's the temperature like? Got a guess? It's Houston out there, folks. <laughs> it is humid. It is hot. So this is not good battle strategy. You have an army, men and materiel. they got all their gear. They've come from a distance. You do not want to attack at midday unless you are so passionate about the goal. Unless you are on the inside so stirred up that even a reasonable military strategy is cast off because you are so aroused to defeat the target. And so it says, let's attack at noon, but something happens. Woe to us, for the day declines. They couldn't assemble in enough time to attack at noon. The day is declining. The sun is setting. See? For the shadows of the evening lengthen. They wanted to hit Israel at noon, the worst time of day to do it. They couldn't because they couldn't get ready. It gets to be nighttime. So it says in verse 5, arise, let's attack by night. Number two, very bad military strategy. Unless you want to surprise the enemy. 
But they don't have to surprise the enemy, in this case Israel, because Israel knows they're there. They've been told about it. They see him. It's broad daylight. So a wiser strategy would have been, number one, don't attack under the heat of the sun. Number two, if you can't get it together early evening, give the troops an opportunity to have a good night's sleep. Get them up early the next morning and go do the deed. But they don't do it. Why? I'm telling you they are so emotionally aroused and set on this particular objective that they're going to go. Now I want to ask you a question. Who do you think aroused them to this rather uh, extreme extent to go against Israel? Who do you think? God? Let's see if you're right. Look at the next verse, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, you are right. Now, folks, you may have a hard time with this. It's God himself who aroused the Babylonians to go to war against God's own people. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept that. Why? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's a New Testament verse. God is the commander-in-chief, not the Babylonian general. Nothing happens in this world that takes God by surprise and that doesn't meet with his approval or that he doesn't orchestrate. The Babylonians had no idea that this appetite to go now, to do it at the most inconvenient, strategically wrong time. They have no idea that that sense of arousal is coming from God himself. Why? They don't have a relationship with him. Do you know something? You do not have to have a personal relationship with God in order for God to use you whether you like it or not. You're just not going to enjoy the ride much. This really helps me quite a bit because if God can use Babylonians, good night, he can work through anybody to get the job done. So I memorized the verse of Scripture. It helps me to sleep at night after watching the news. You know, you do not want to watch the news before you go to bed. So I memorized this verse. It's a good one. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Listen. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Justin, I'm getting nervous about the world's leaders and all the rest. I say, wait a second. You are the most high God. You can make use of anybody to accomplish your redemptive purposes. In the end, there will be victory in Jesus because there's victory through Jesus. You see, no matter what. So here, it's God actually stirring up the Babylonians to come. And so you can see verse 6. He tells them, cut down her, Jerusalem's trees. Cut down her trees and cast up a siege against Jerusalem. I don't think he literally was heard speaking to them. Remember, they're not in a covenant relationship. But I think it's him who stirred them up. Now here's a good strategy. You have a walled city. How are you going to take it? Well, you need some kind of rampart. And so God says, cut down the trees. Build a rampart with the trees. You get up to the walls, set the trees on fire, burn the city down. Do you know later on the Romans did that in A.D. 70? That's what they did. So if you go to the Jerusalem today and stand on the Mount of Olives, for instance, 
Mount of Olives. There are olive trees, but not nearly as many as there were. Where did they go? The Romans cut them down to set Jerusalem on fire, just as the Babylonians did. Only the Romans did it much, much later. So that's kind of what's going on over here. Then, skip down, if you will, to verse 8. Be warned, O Jerusalem, or I shall be alienated from you. God speaks. You know what that is? It's an insertion of mercy in the midst of a, an expression of God's holy indignation. Even at this point, even at this advanced state of Israel's disobedience, rebellion, and hard-heartedness, still you have the opportunity given for Israel to repent and turn back to God. So God says, be warned, O Jerusalem, or I shall be alienated from you. In the Hebrew, that literally means, or I shall be torn away from you. It's better. I shall be torn away from you. You know what Almighty God is implying? I think it's this. I think he's saying, do you think it's easy for me to turn my back on Israel? The people I birthed? the people I brought forth, the people I constituted into a nation, the people I gave my law to, the people who are the apple of my eye, the people from whom Messiah will come. Do you think it's easy for me to tear myself apart from her? You think it comes easy? Do you think this is on impulse? Do you think I'm just mad? Do you think I'm moody? Do you think I had a bad day? No, even now, be warned, O Israel lest I tear myself apart from you. It's kind of what's going on. So then it goes on, and I'm going to skip a little bit uh, over here. How about verse 10? To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Their ears are closed. So God sends warning through prophets like Jeremiah, and the people don't respond. It's said that their ears are closed. In the Hebrew I don't mean to be too graphic, but I think you should know this. It says their ears are uncircumcised. You know why that's important? Circumcision was hugely important in Israel then and now. Why? It was a sign of belonging to the covenant with God. You might say baptism today is the equivalent of that. When someone is baptized, they're saying, they're declaring, even without a word, I belong to Jesus. He is my Savior. Circumcision essentially said that. I'm part of the covenant with Almighty God. And God says, you know, you put a lot of stock in that procedure, but your real problem is not that particular practice or ritual. The real problem is your heart is closed and your ears are closed. You need a circumcised heart. That's essentially what God is saying. So then it says... Um, I'll skip a little bit. Look at verse 12. These are the consequences that God says are going to befall Israel for her disobedience. Your houses will be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. So I'll tell you what's important about verse 12. It's almost an exact um, duplication of what is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30. 
In Deuteronomy 28, verse 30, we have the words of Moses, in which Moses, inspired by God, says to Israel, if you disobey, there will be consequences. And those consequences are repeated and applied here in Jeremiah 6. So I want to depart from the text just for a second to share something I hope might be helpful to you. And if it's not, um, what are you going to do? Nobody's perfect. Do you know in the Bible there are many covenants mentioned? A covenant is an arrangement between two parties. So if you're married, that's a covenant. That's an arrangement. You could refer to a covenant kind of as a contract, but I'm not sure that quite gets it. But it's an arrangement. It's, it's a way, a, a stipulated way in which two parties are going after the signing of the covenant are going to relate to one another. So there is that kind of thing in the Bible. Many covenants in which God says, this is how I am going to relate to you. This is how you need to relate to me. That's a covenant. So one of the early covenants in the Bible was given, was made, was inaugurated by God with someone called Abram, who later was named Abraham. You can read all about it in Genesis chapter 12 if you'd like. Since it's God's covenant with Abraham, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. It's kind of a weird way of saying it, but just so that you know what that is, it's the Abrahamic covenant. Now here's what it's about. Abraham lived in a strange country, Uh, He came from a whole long line of idol worshipers. God speaks to him. Why him? I don't know. I don't think he knew. God could do what he wants. He said, Abram, leave everything and go to a land I'll show you. Abram does. He finds himself a sojourner, a pilgrim in this new land. When he gets there, God says to him, I'm going to give you stuff. And not just you. I'm going to give you and your descendants stuff. Abraham might have been saying to himself, why? What have I done? God continues. He said, I I will give you a land. And then God even stipulates the specific boundaries of the land. The northern boundary, the southern, the eastern, and the western. Very clear. So we know it's not figurative language. It's like actual real estate. I'm going to give your people land, and I'm going to bless them, and you're always going to have a king on the throne. I'm going to do all this. And if you read that transaction, that covenant between God and Abram, it's a lot of this, God saying, I will, but not I will if you will, just I will. That makes that covenant a covenant with out condition or an unconditional covenant. So it's not, I do this, you do that. It's God saying, I do it all. You receive it. Now I say, are you kidding me? What's the deal? Abram was probably saying that. That's called a gracious and merciful God acting out of grace and mercy. So if you examine the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, the first few verses, I defy you to identify a condition 
for the covenant to be enforced. There is no condition to be met by Abraham or his people. Nothing. It's called free. You might call it grace. You might call it amazing grace. That's the covenant. Okay. Now let's fast forward a number of years, and you got a guy named Moses. We left Abraham behind. Now you got Moses. You know Moses? He was a baby, and 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 um, you know he was pulled out of the Nile, and and he came to be a defender of his people, and he had to run away from the Egyptians. You know, and he be, be, he leads his people out, and God says to this guy when he grows up, He says, Moses, go up to this place called Mount Sinai. And bring the people. But don't let them get too close because this is going to be a heavy scene. I'm coming down on the mountain. And they don't want to get too close because I'm holy. The mountain is going to shake. And it did, man. I mean, it is quaking and shaking and lightning. And it's, it's, it's so that the people could see God is not your pal. He's God. And Moses said, you and you alone come up. I'll meet with you there. And God gives Moses a reflection of his own character. Those are called the Ten Commandments. God says, this is what I'm like. I'm moral, intensely moral. I'm intensely, I'm holy. And therefore, those people have to be holy like me. Give them these commandments inscribed on tablets. That's called the covenant with Moses or the Mosaic covenant. And as you read about the Mosaic covenant, you find out God says this, under that covenant, there are conditions to that one. God says, if you obey this covenant, which is the law, the commandments, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. That's what he says. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, no conditions. The Mosaic covenant, plenty. What's going on? God is saying, I am giving you things freely, but you'll never, ever fully enjoy those things if you disobey me. See the two covenants? You did nothing to get in on all of these things. I'm making you an heir of all these things, of land, of blessing, all the rest. You did nothing to deserve it. It's an unconditional covenant. But if you want to fully enjoy it without restriction and interference, you must obey me. Abrahamic covenant, no conditions. Mosaic covenant, conditions. So what you're seeing in Jeremiah 6 is the application of the Mosaic Covenant. God is saying through Jeremiah, look, I chose you. I entered into covenant with you. I could have chosen any people on earth. I chose you. I ratified my blessing through Abram, then Isaac, then Jacob. I didn't ask him to do a thing. It wasn't that I do this if you do that. It was I do everything. I give you all this. It was an unconditional covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant says you'll never freely enjoy it if you disobey me. Act like a covenant person if you really want to enter into covenant blessings. And God is saying you didn't, Israel. And therefore, the consequences of disobedience, which I told you about under Moses, are being applied to you now under Jeremiah. Can you see that? Okay, now I'll tell you why I say that, all that. I mentioned two covenants, one with Abraham, one with Moses. You're, you're in a covenant relationship with God. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, what's that called? The new covenant. Do you know where you read about the new covenant? In Jeremiah. You don't have to wait for the New Testament to read about the new covenant. There's nothing new in the New Testament. It's just clearer. If we ever get to Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33, 
You're going to see about the new covenant. Well, let me tell you about the new covenant. I'm under that one too. It's really cool. It's as if God is saying, hey, uh, all of you people, uh, you are not obeying my law. In fact, he says, all of you have sinned and you have fallen short from my standards, from my glory. And then God has a choice. He could wipe us all out and start the new the world uh, with a new race of people. Instead, he says, no, I'll make a new covenant. I will put law, my law in you. I will inscribe it on your hearts, not on stone. Why? Because what's external to us seems not to change us. We need a heart transplant. So God says, I will inscribe my law on your hearts. I'll do a thing from the inside out because anything from the outside doesn't get in. So how did he do that? He says, I'll come in you. I will come into you. Why? Because you can't get to me. You don't even want to. You don't even seek me. I will come into you. How? I'll send my spirit. How? I will reduce myself to flesh. I will come in visibly, visible bodily form. Uh, my name will be Jesus, who is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the full embodiment of deity. He's your Savior. When you accept him, my spirit will come into you. Not a physical body, my spirit. In Hebrew, we call it the Ruach HaKodesh. The spirit, the Holy One, God's spirit. And my spirit will change you from the inside out. And if you search the strictures of the new covenant, I ask the question again, what did you do to get in on it? Nothing. God did not say, I will if you will. God said, it is finished. I've done it all. I came down because you can't get up. I suffered and died. I offered myself to you. Well, you say, yeah, but you have to accept. You don't get brownie points for accepting a gift. That is not a work of righteousness on your part to accept a gift. You responded. I understand that. But you don't get patted on the back for accepting an inexpressible gift. So don't you see under the new covenant, those of us here who are under it, that's unconditional as well. However, what if you're a saved person, a Christian, you're under the new covenant and you disobey God? Did you lose your salvation? No, you did not. Any more than Abram's descendants lost what was given to them because it was given without condition. But if you disobey God as a saved person, you're probably going to be one of the most unhappy people on earth. Why? Because before you got under the new covenant, you sinned all the more, and it was kind of cool and fun. Didn't bother you that much. If it felt good, you did it. There was absolutely nothing to restrain you. But when God added his spirit into your life, now you're, you're in a battle. Paul calls it a daily flesh versus spirit battle. You still have your nature. That's the flesh. But now God added his nature. That's the spirit. So now, as a saved person, when you sin, God's spirit poses resistance. He disturbs you. He convicts you. He makes you feel legitimately troubled by what you just did. You did not lose your salvation. You lost the opportunity to enjoy it in full measure. So today you have the land of Israel. And some say because of disobedience, Israel forfeited their right to the land. No, they didn't. They just forfeited their enjoyment of the land forever given to them. 
unconditionally. Why is it important to know that? Because the Old Testament covenants are a parallel to the New Testament one. They foreshadow it. If because of disobedience God withdrew his covenant from Israel, then when, because of your disobedience, will he withdraw himself from you? He won't. Why? (laughs) Because he saved you freely. He's the author and perfecter of the faith. He's the beginning and the end of it. You just got in on it. Just like Abram, dumbfounded. Why me? You too, you might say. Oh God, why me? The grace and mercy of God. But the most miserable person on earth is a disobedient Christian because you know better. So you have Israel in the land today, the land given to them freely under the Abrahamic covenant, but never in Israel's history has she had full enjoyment of the full extent of the land, you say, because she's disobeyed. The land goes to the Tigris and Euphrates River. That's Iraq. Can you imagine that? We wouldn't even have to be in Iraq today fighting. Israel obeyed God. She would be in possession of that land right now. There are sure consequences for disobeying God if you're one of his children. But you'll never cease to be one of his children if you do. How do I know that? Because of the nature of the covenant. Some are conditional and some are unconditional. Now, the reason I belabor this point is kind of a theology lesson. Because we're seeing a resurrection of interest in something called replacement theology today, which says Christians stop supporting Israel's right to the land. They have turned their back on God. You should turn your back on Israel. But you don't understand the ramifications of that. If you opt for that, then you believe their land right is contingent on their obedience. What about your right to the promised land? Heaven. If Israel lost her promised land because of disobedience, that puts you in jeopardy. But God never said, I will adopt you if, I will bring you home if, I will make you my son or daughter if, if you do, if you do... He gave the gift of salvation to those of us who are saved. You can be extremely unhappy if you're not acting like a saved person. But even if you don't, God does not withdraw his covenant if it's an unconditional covenant. Okay, so I'm going to stop there for a second because I've been rambling for a long time. Does that make sense or or would you like to ask a question or, or would you like to tell me I'm all washed up? I mean, that's legitimate too. Does that, can you, yeah. Okay. Let me know if you have any questions. Just throw your hand up and I'll I'll try not to ignore you. Okay, so Abrahamic Mosaic Covenant, totally, 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 totally different. You know, it's kind of like saying, I made you a child of mine. When will I ever cease to be your dad? But if it's a disobedient child, then the quality of the communion with the father is really, really minimized. So that's kind of what's happening. The quality of the covenant relationship between Israel and God is really, really minimized. But it doesn't mean it's been terminated. Okay. So now we go on here just a little bit. Look at verse 14. They, in order to know who the they is, you've got to read verse 13. It's prophets and priests. They are the, the equivalent of governmental and religious leaders. 
the governmental and religious leaders in ancient Israel, they have healed the brokenness of my people. But what does your Bible say next? Superficially. So it's like having a big gaping open wound and someone puts a Band-Aid on it. Well, how did they heal the wound superficially? Saying, peace, peace. Do you happen to know what the Hebrew word for peace is? Yeah, so, so, so the governmental and religious leaders of ancient Israel are invoking the very traditional word for peace. Shalom, shalom. But God says, no, there is no shalom. They are preaching an unauthorized message of peace. What's the authorized message? It's of wrath <laughs> and therefore the need for repentance. That's the message he put in Jeremiah's mouth. So what do the governmental and religious leaders uh, of the people do? They say, oh, come on. Everything's cool. Everything's fine. We can work it out. We can do it. They were humanistic. They were man-centered. All you need is love. We can just join hands together across the world and fix everything that's broken. Peace, peace. But God didn't authorize that message. Folks, I don't want to be a bad guy, but this is us today. I really don't want to be a bad guy in telling you we are devolving as Americans. We're going down morally, I mean, ethically, I mean. Even lovely Mrs. Laura Bush supports two positions. She has every right to support, but not if you want to be right with God. One, same gender, covenant, marriage. I didn't say persecute people. I didn't say be hateful and degrading. But that is an oxymoron. If it's not marriage between a man and a woman, it isn't marriage. How do I know this? Because God's the one who came up with it. That's why we call it holy matrimony. For this cause a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. She says, no, if two people love each other, it's cool. Second. I don't think she said we should repeal the legally authorized right for a lady to uh, uh, have an abortion. I don't think we have any right to hurt anyone, despise anyone, punish anyone. I didn't say that. But folks, that is the unauthorized taking of life. I love Laura Bush. Well, I find her to be lovely. I find her to be saying, shalom, shalom, and there is none. She ought to be crying out, we were right, my husband is right. Abortion is displeasing to God. We are right. Same gender covenant of marriage is a redefinition of marriage which is contrary to the definition of marriage given by the God who established the institution of marriage. If you want to call it something else, okay. It is a secular, pluralistic society. Okay. Call it civil partnership. Call it what you want. But it is not marriage. It cannot be accorded the same respect as male-female marriage. I don't have any right to modify something that God came up with. So, so this stuff is happening today, but God's message is repent, repent. Repent. Turn. You know what he's saying to Americans and everybody else? 
Yeah, here is your manifest destiny. That's what our forebears believed, that we had a manifest destiny here, given by God, specially blessed to be a special blessing. They are correct. And God is saying, you who live freely, you who are choosing to live your lives apart from me who gave you life, repent. You whose leaders, political and uh, spiritual, trying to make you feel good, we can get it all. Folks, we can't even stop an oil spill in the Gulf. We ain't going to be able to repair the moral and ethical degradation with which we have degraded ourselves. We need a Savior. No, we don't preach shalom, shalom. We preach coming judgment. We preach the message of peace when we admit our animosity and adversarial relationship with God and then come to have peace with him through the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus. So anyway, that day is like this day. Okay, I'm going to skip stuff because I want to. <laughs> Verse 20. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba? Sheba is a country in southwest Arabia. And the sweet cane from a distant land. Frankincense is like a gum re- resin. And you can crush it up into a powder and set it on fire. And it's a sweet smelling Incense. And sweet cane, of course, is sweet as well. They probably got the sweet cane from India in those days. Essentially, God is saying, what you think is religiously sweet to you ain't sweet to me. Israel's heart was apart from God, but boy, were they religious. God says, doesn't work for me. Nothing wrong with frankincense. Nothing wrong with sweet cane. But I don't want it. I want you. I want a covenant relationship. I want marriage with you. Don't buy me off with an expensive gift on my birthday when you're having an affair with somebody else. You understand? Then God goes on to say in the next phrase, your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices are not pleasing. But God's the one who authorized those burnt offerings and sacrifices. But you know what he's saying? The very thing I authorized for you to show devotion to me are not acceptable to me if your heart is removed from it. So let me tell you this, which could is, I don't know, maybe a bad thing. If you came to church today, um, but you're not, you're not in a covenant relationship with God and don't care to be, you could just as easily have stayed home, saved yourself the trip, saved me a parking spot. Going to church doesn't get you points. It's religion. It's frankincense. It's sweet cane. God wants a family. He wants a relationship. When one comes to church because one says, Oh, God, I want to praise you. I want to honor you. I want to worship you with others who worship you. God says, Bring it on. I value that. That's in the context of relationship. Otherwise, it's just religiosity. So Americans are more religious than I and ever in my day. We are religious like crazy. It means Zippo. It means nothing. Nothing. I mean, even Madonna. She's the most religious person on earth for crying out loud. Madonna. She's into Kabbalah now, you know. The, that's Jewish. Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism. I don't know if you know that. 
Madonna. Do you think all that religiosity buys God off so he turns away from a rather degrading lifestyle that she lives and promotes? I'm not trying to hammer on Madonna. I'm just using her as a good example. It doesn't... Don't be religious. Don't come to church. Come to Jesus who came to you first. And then be part of a community of others who have. Anyway. Okay, so then here's how the thing ends. Um, The last few verses, God uses an analogy. Metallurgy. Ancient refining of metals. God says, Jeremiah, here's your role. You're a tester of metals. You're an assayer of the value of a metal. And uh, Israel, you're the ore. Uh, Jeremiah, I tried to burn off their impurities. Didn't work. They still remain impure. Therefore, conclusion, verse 30, they call them, Israel, rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. In spite of his efforts to burn off their immoral impurities, didn't work, they rejected silver. Now, here's the deal. When you read the Bible, and it's a really good thing to read the Bible, I encourage it. You, you sort of have to read the whole Bible. And we're not able to. We just read Jeremiah 6. So we end with, God has rejected Israel. Yeah, but there's more of the Bible. Has God indeed rejected Israel totally? Completely? No. Romans 11. Let's just go hundreds of years removed from this. Romans 11, verse 1. One verse, one verse. And then we go home. Romans 11, verse 1. Look what it says. I say then, it's Paul speaking. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He answers his own question. May it never be. What's the proof? Here's what he says, Paul. I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. And get this. Of the tribe of what? Benjamin. Interesting. First verse of Jeremiah 6, we find out Jeremiah is a member of the tribe of Benjamin. There's this unbelievable, devastating conquest by the Babylonians. They burn the city to the ground. They take the people off captive and all the rest. And yet hundreds of years after, we still got a Benjamite alive. He happens to be the Apostle Paul, the who wrote one... Is it one-seventh in the New Testament? He wrote a lot of the New Testament. (laughs) And is the apostle of the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, no, God's rejection of Israel is partial and temporary. Why? Because we're living in a day, Romans 11, verse 25 and 26, calls the fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? It means God in response to the rejection of the gospel by my people, has offered it to you people. And you've gotten in on it. And it's still open to you people. Until the fullness of the Gentiles in God's house is complete. He has set aside Israel. He didn't reject them. He set them aside to make way for you. When he's done dealing with you... (laughs) He returns to deal with Israel once again. And so it says in Romans 11, you read it for yourself, verse 26, and then all Israel will be saved. How could it be that the story ends, therefore, with Jeremiah 6? 
when Romans 11 tells us, and no way. It's just beginning. Why is that important? Is it a Jewish thing? No. It's a God and you thing. If God has rejected his covenant people, Israel, entirely and permanently, when is he going to reject you? You can't have it both ways. You can't say those Jews, they forfeited all their blessing (laughs) and then say, but it will never happen to me. The basis for the assurance of your salvation is Romans 11. (laughs) Has God rejected the Jews? May it never be. I'm one, says Paul. And then after the fullness of the Gentiles, all Israel will be saved. So I'll tell you what this is all about. We are really bad. And God is really, really merciful. This is summation. Human nature has not changed. It's just as bad as it always has been. Divine nature has not changed. It's just as merciful and gracious as it always has been. As he has been, so he will be, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He made an unconditional covenant with you. It's called the covenant of salvation. Obey and enjoy. If you disobey, he will discipline you because he loves you. He will discipline me because he loves me, because he wants to bring us back into alignment with the high calling with which we have been called, and it can never be forfeited because he did it. You didn't do it. You just got in on it, you see. So, Lord Jesus, uh, we bow before you. What a plan. Your wisdom is uh, inexhaustible. What a plan. To use bad things, even the rebelliousness of the Jewish people, for good, the salvation of Gentile people. And then to use the salvation of Gentile people for good, that is to say, to make my people jealous. It's unbelievable what you've done. It's fantastic. That you haven't just given up on us is just a tremendous testimony to your mercy and grace. We just can't shake you, can we? We seem to try, but we just can't. Thank you so much that we can't. Thank you for the covenant uh, that will not let us go. It's new. It's on the inside. changes us from the inside out. Thank you for being our heavenly husband and calling us the bride of Christ. Thank you for never divorcing us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the freeness of our salvation. And now we pray, oh, God, we might respond appropriately by living as saved people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Hope to see you next time.